welcome. We're back in session with your host Jay of What's Going On, a social studies network podcast. Now let's get into it. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of What's Going On, a Social Studies Network podcast. Today, I am joined with Dr. Rivera. I am so excited to talk to you. I've heard so much about you. Everyone keeps saying, oh, my God, you're a mommy at Dr. Rivera. And I'm like, I got to meet her. So I would love for you to introduce yourself. Tell me, tell everyone about who you are. Okay, that could be real long, but I'm going to... I think I'll start as born and raised in Chicago, mother who absolutely loved education. Her education story has been my example and the fact that she was actually a seventh grade dropout mm. who after having like eight children by the time she was about 25, went back to school, got her GED through community colleges. From there, she got a BA um, and I think she also has two masters. In that time, she had her children. There were some days we would be running around Malcolm X College back in the day. She would have us reading her Richard Wright books and Claude McKay, Man, Child, and the Promised Land. Oh, wow. So okay. she was putting, when we were young, she was putting that value and love of education in us even then. And I was also blessed to have particular mentors in my life who, along with the education piece, upheld that beauty of our blackness yes. so I went to a school that was actually in Chicago one of the first schools to take children to Africa oh wow. and my mentor was still connected and friends this, to this day she's known me since I was seven so these are and then in community organizations I had strong African-American women who would mentor me mm -hmm. and these are the women whose shoulder I'm standing on which has brought me through coming through CPS as a student, teacher, administrator, going back to school to get my PhD and believing in the power of community and engagement and school and has led me to where I am today, Dr. Rivera. Yes, that is beautiful. And before I get into my questions, I just want to point out something that you said about your mom going back to school and dropping out and things like that. My grandma instilled the love of education into me. And part of the reason why education was instilled into her is because she understood that, you know, when her dad was growing up and when her grandma was growing up, school wasn't necessarily a something that was afforded to them mm -hmm. because they had to go back and they had to work and, you know, be sharecroppers and things mm -hmm. of that sort. And at a certain age, school wasn't necessarily something that was 
allowed for them to go to because it was the expectation that they work and that they help their family out and this is wasn't the norm for black children to do that and so she decided to go and get her master's throughout all the adversity that she went through and just growing up she just instilled into me the importance of education for black children for black women and what it means for the kids in our community and with that I want to start off with the question I always ask everyone what did you think of social studies when you first went into teaching and what do you think it is now with all of your accolades? So when I first went into social studies as a teacher, I thought it was basically about the studying the ways in which, oh no, let me go back. When I first went into it as a teacher, I thought of it more of a, in a historical sense. Mm -hmm not necessarily the value of present day. I think my understanding has evolved over time, but I was a 21 year old teacher starting out and I do have an endorsement in social studies. And so I didn't think of it in its current context as much as mm -hmm. I do now. I think I thought of it more historically mm -hmm. uh, in the past. I don't think even children enjoyed it as much in terms of because Somehow you make this connection to history. I'm, and that's just was well, a reality to me. Yeah. Now, when I think of it, I realize it's very integral to education itself. When you study what happens in society, when you study what goes on, um, when you think of social issues and things of that nature, mm -hmm. there's no way that you can um, separate that mm -hmm. from what happens actually in any part of life. And so I think that that is actually what led me back to get my PhD hmm. because I talk about these ecological partnerships and the fact that in a young person's life or all of our lives, there are a number of systems that influence it. They, they are not isolated or in silos. And so I think over time, my uh, understanding of what I think about social studies has evolved. Yeah, I think I'm still, obviously, I'm still learning what social studies is. Every time I come and I have these conversations, I think, oh, I know what social studies is now. And then every time someone tells me something new and I'm like, I don't know what social studies is yet. And I'm still figuring it out because I thought that social studies was politics. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while to figure out that social studies was history. I thought they were separate things because history is such a small part of it. Mm -hmm. And politics seemed more important than the history aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm still figuring out that social studies is everything mm -hmm. and social studies is not just social studies. And you bring up community, mm -hmm. which the first thing that I want to ask you about that is when did you realize community involvement was important to the education system? So I'll be honest, I, I had such a rich community growing up. I grew up in poverty, mm -hmm. but I grew up with a rich community, a social community that I actually took it for granted mm -hmm. until I, when I began teaching, naturally, I would work with, like there was one judge that I worked with from the juvenile detention. We came up with a program, we created it. I created a program with another organization because they would come into our schools, work with our kids. And so I took it for granted and did what I naturally do, mm -hmm. bring in the community into what we're doing in school. It was as natural as me breathing. 
then I think I realized that that's not everyone's way. Mm. And I also, it was like, I came to a greater understanding. I was in this classroom pouring myself out, moved up to an administrative level, pouring myself out. And particularly for the highly vulnerable youth that I'm used to working with, we just were not going to do it alone in school mm. because school some youth have an antagonistic relationship with school. They don't think of school as the safe haven that we we are we want to we want it to be. They don't necessarily think of it that way. And so I think that is what led me back to the PhD, as I said before, and it led me to want to be working from the other side. Yeah. For the simple fact and. I still see it just the time, the small time I've been director of research and partnership, even here. Mm -hmm. While, you know, being mindful that I love and appreciate school community partnerships, but recognizing that there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Someone who's been on both sides of the table, I'm finding from this side of the table, some schools are not as welcoming when you come from the other side, so. I, what you said about taking community for granted, mm -hmm. my uncle, he works at the same school that my grandma does and he's the dean there as well. And something that was always very important for them was community. So growing up, I thought that was something that was natural. I'm seeing them like, oh, this kid doesn't have money mm -hmm. to go on the field trip. It's yes. fine. Just let them go. I'll pay for it. You know, let's fundraise for these boys to get suits or for these mm -hmm. girls to get dresses for their luncheon or for their homecoming. You know, it's still kids. Well, they're adults now because they're like my dad's age mm -hmm. who are looking at my grandma and they're like, hey, Miss Logan. Hey, and it's like she's like, I'm like, it's nighttime. How do they recognize you? Like you're literally down the street, like in grocery stores. And clearly they're like, I remember when you did this for me when I was a kid or I remember you were really nice to me or, and it's just, and she also lives in a community as a lot of kids too. So sometimes they'll see her in a car and they'll be like, Miss Logan, hey. And I'm like, who are these people? She's like, that's my student. And she still remembers a lot of their name. Like I think every single student that walks up to her, she remembers who they are. And my uncle does the same thing. And I think it's beautiful because some of them, he's whoever they need the students to be. Yeah, He's their uncle, dad. Yeah brother confidant teacher dean whoever the students need to be that's who he is and when and he walks around he buys them snacks mm -hmm. you know whenever and they see him walking around they'll see him in the gas station mm -hmm. they'll probably see him at the park I didn't realize how important community was mm -hmm. and how rare it was until I got to high school I went to a noble school I always talk about it because it is very important to my story and to mm -hmm. a lot of black and brown children's stories because to me I feel like Noble was created in a way to assimilate black and brown children more into white society and into mm -hmm. white culture I because say, you for high school students, there was literally labels for where they're supposed to stand. Yeah. I was offended. I was offended. Anyway, just glad we're on the same page about that. So you can keep going. With what Look, we're definitely on the same page. I didn't have to grow 
through that, through that process. But I know for me, I went to Catholic school before I got there. So structure was something that was normal for me, mm. but it was the kind of structure that we had that was more so a prison than it was structure. Mm. And I also say that now because noble school is not the way that they used to be. A lot of the rules have been taken away because the creator of noble schools has some controversy around him. And so now they want to separate themselves. And I always said, you guys want to separate him because of these controversies, but you didn't want to separate yourself from him because of these racist ideologies that he based these schools upon. Mm -hmm. And they're only in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And you really only see them in certain communities. Yes. You don't see them everywhere. Yes. And so going back to what the school was before, the only way that y'all think y'all can keep us in line is through these absolute horrid, like strict rules. But when these strict rules are taken away, then all of a sudden, y'all can't be in school no more or y'all can't handle the kids anymore. Mm -hmm. When I was there, all the rules have like transformed each year. And I remember when I had an advisor who went to noble school and he's like, y'all had it way easier than we did. And I'm like, easier? What did y'all go through before we got here? I mean, hair color couldn't be outside of a certain range. If your hair was a certain, you could only have natural hair color. So gray, black, brown, red, but it couldn't be fire truck red. So we know what kind of red they talking about, but sometimes teachers would take Sharpies and they're like, I don't want you to go to in-school suspension in this class. So I'm going to color in the parts that I can color in and get it to be as black as much as I possibly can because they would have to miss a whole school day because their hair is red. I remember one day. Color hair? Yes. Some teachers would color in the hair with Sharpies because of the fact that they didn't want their students to miss class because their hair color wasn't right. Some students who had slits in their eyebrow that was against the rules. And so sometimes they would take a Sharpie and color in a slit. And I'm like, what if this slit was natural in their eyebrows? Boys couldn't have designs in their hair. And I'm like, considering what black culture is, hair is important. Hair designs are important. So if we're taking away their individuality and we're all supposed to look the same based on these standards that y'all want us to walk through, mm -hmm. how are we supposed to be individuals? How are we supposed to grow and learn? Now you're putting us in these boxes of, you're either gonna do what we say or we're gonna put you in, so in school suspension mm -hmm. or you get to go home. Or at lunchtime, you can be separated from your friends. So what is that saying? We're going to criminalize you. And we're going to make criminalization normalized for you. So when you go out into the world after high school, when you graduate, all in your mind, everything that you do is a problem. Everything that you do is, is trouble. And you're not a normal human. But now, listen to what you just spent the last two minutes talking about. Mm -hmm. You talked about a whole bunch of things. Did education even learning and see that's what really upsets me you're putting all these extra things on our children that really don't have anything to do with their capacity to learn mm -hmm. and I if anybody knows me I love some, some order yes I love order yes but I don't I think we need to understand what order is my classroom used to be on point like you come in kids were talking laughing doing the learning was happening mm -hmm. and I think what hit me the most as I listened to you I literally like it reminded me like why I never went back you're taking something so beautiful education this love of learning and you're dampening it with arts things that are superficial that don't really matter and I remember when my son was going to high school, my husband and I, we visited a lot of schools. And this is where it really, right at the time, I was also working on my PhD. Mm -hmm. 
we were going to these schools in certain neighborhoods under certain types of, you know, um, socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. The kids are in the hallway with their lunch on the floor with a laptop, laying, talking to each other in groups, their shoes off, the teachers are walking by, hi, Billy, and what's up, this, and it was community. Yeah. And I'm like, why don't our schools look like this? Now, again, I'm not jaded in my thinking that this is going to be every place we go, but the thing that gets me the most is I love learning. Yes. And our kids are capable of learning. Some of the stuff that they can tell you, it lets you know, oh, you don't have a problem learning. It's all of these other things, which is getting back to the social studies and why it's so important because education isn't just about the capacity to learn. It's so many other things that weigh into that. And to hear you talk that just something like boiled up inside of me and it makes me want to push harder. I yeah. know I'm just one person, but from that other side of the desk, it's so much yeah. that you're putting on our children that really honestly have. If we went down to the bare bones of what it means to be capable of learning, these things technically shouldn't matter, but that's why we have to do social studies and these other things because in essence, they actually do. Yeah. I remember you, oh my God, you saying the shoes off triggered my memory to my first ever demerit that I got, which was my shoe being halfway off my foot. I was clicking the shoe on and off my foot because I like to like, you know, just tap my foot around. She said, your shoe is halfway off one demerit. I was like, are you kidding me? I remember like my earrings are too big for my ear. They're like, you need to take that off. That's a demerit. Like, oh my God, all my fashion statements, all my my little jittery things that I do to keep myself calm in class were demerits. I'm like, I can't even be myself. And then the, what makes it so bad is that these teachers don't even live in my neighborhood. They live two hours away. In order to be at, a, at the school, they get up so early to come and be there. And then, you know, I had some teachers, obviously, I'm not going to down all the teachers. I'm not going to down the entire system because there are good things within mm -hmm. it. <laughs> However, truth needs to be told. Some of these teachers would leave right after. Some of these teachers are not even from Chicago. So you're building even more barriers for us. And I think with you just talking about community, that's important, you know, and I just want to know, like, what are the ways that you're contributing to creating the community that you want to see and that you want to foster? So I love young people. I love people. I really do. I I also love people. Now, you wouldn't believe this. I'm more on the introverted side than not. Okay. And people don't believe that when they interact with me, but I do love people. I love young people. And I think me coming back and taking this position almost a year and a half ago, mm -hmm. that was one way that I made a decision to contribute again. Systems sometimes don't work the best for me. Mm. I know how to work well within systems because, you know, you know, I know how to cooperate. I know how to be a team player and do those things. But I think there's something about the way I was uniquely designed and created. I like to push against those things. Yeah. I like to push. You would have never told me when I walked into that classroom um, 10 years ago that I would have ever left. I was doing the thing I love the most. But some, I'm also a problem solver. Mm. And it took me about two years to be saying like, mm, no, this isn't the best way I can contribute what I thought I could do for our children mm -hmm. this way. 
that led me back to get my master's degree. Did that, became an administrator, looked around, my heart wasn't there mm -hmm. because it was so much bureaucracy. God bless the principles. I'm not, some people are created for that. My whole point in saying this, I wasn't. Mm -hmm. I wasn't created for that. And so I, I actually resigned and would just, now again, everybody's not in that situation. My husband owned a company at the time. I could take some time and step back and say, hey, how can I contribute in a better way? Mm -hmm. And I consulted, did educational consulting. And then along the way, was able to make my way back through the PhD, mm -hmm. talk about what I told you, ecological partnerships and the roles multiple community organizations play into our youth who are highly vulnerable mm -hmm. and being successful um, academically and socially. And then I took this position a year and a half ago. I try to, I do, a. most of us do above and beyond. My title doesn't include half the things that I do, I bet. but it's just me. Yeah. Like I'm out there hugging parents. We had an event um, to about two weeks ago. I was up there on my teacher days came back. Now I'm the researcher and the partnership person. I'm up there with the kids talking, singing, doing stuff because that's community. That's life. Like you don't say, oh, I'm only supposed to do this. Or mm -hmm. I'm only that's it. I'm, I stand here sometimes. Our parents come in. Some of them are in the best. One parent came to sign her kids up. She was like sloppy, drunk. She really mm. was. You could smell that the kids were embarrassed, but I treated them so well. At the end, she gave me a hug and the kids did too. They were seventh and ninth graders. Mm, okay. And now they're in our program. And I can see that they have a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. But the ways in which our staff can be here, it goes above and beyond your job title. And yeah. I think when you operate in community, you kind of realize that even mm -hmm. as a teacher, yeah. like you said, your grandma and your uncle, uh, same way. I totally get it. You, you don't stay with, you don't let your role or your title define your boundaries. Mm -hmm. And that's who I want to show up as, as a teacher. I remember growing up, my dream was to always be a lawyer. And I still want to try to pursue that, but I want to do family law mm -hmm. because I want to make sure that I'm understanding the legal side of everything because I want to be able to have resources in as many places as I can. Mm -hmm. But at the same token, I still want to be in the classroom and I still want to be a teacher. I know a lot of my friends and a lot of my peers are telling me, oh, you should be a principal. You would be great for that. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, okay. But I want to be in the classroom with the kids. I feel like sometimes being a principal doesn't allow you to have that same capacity, to have that same space, to build these personal relationships mm -hmm. and be there in the classroom with them, talking with them, laughing with them, crying with them, you know, helping them to build the steps that they want to be when they leave. Mm -hmm. And I remember I had an experience this summer uh, being a performance arts um, camp counselor. And I had the babies when they first met me, they were like, and we were going through our, through our meetings and we were trying to figure out, oh, which grade should you guys be placed? And I'm like, well, I want to teach a high school. So, you know, I'll take the 12 year olds. And once they met me, they're like, no, you're going to be with the seven, eight year olds. <laughs> and I was like, okay, fine. I'll do that. I love kids. And so when I got with them, I was like, oof, they're making me realize every day why I want to be with high schoolers. Mm -hmm. But the beauty about kids is that 
they see the beauty in life no matter if they're crying, mm -hmm. no matter if they're angry, no matter how many times like, Miss G, I gotta go to the bathroom, please. <laughs> no matter how many times they have these big emotions and these big reactions, they don't know how to express it. Mm -hmm. So to me, it might come across as, oh, you're being you're being disrespectful, you're being rude, but I had to take my I had to take mm -hmm. a step back, learn some patience, look at my black babies and say, you're me, I'm you. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to make sure that I'm working on my patience. I'm working on my communication. I'm working on my emotional intelligence. So that way I can build with you. And I remember like, I kept making so many mistakes. I'm like, these kids do not like me. I know they don't like me. Mm -hmm. And they're like, Ms. J, go check in the, go check in the kid box. Like, it's a note for you. And I was like, hmm, I wonder what it's going to say. And I opened it and it was like, you're the best teacher ever. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, it literally made me cry. Cause I was like, I didn't know that while me working through trying to be the best mm -hmm. person I could be for these kids, they could see that. Because mm -hmm. one thing about kids, they yes. know when you phone, yes. they yes. know when you're real, they know how you feel about them. Mm -hmm. And I remember I had this one little girl come up to me every day and she would hug my legs and she would whisper, Miss J, you're the best teacher ever. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like they, they really made me enjoy wanting to be in the classroom more, enjoy talking to the parents more, enjoy being around them more, enjoy being in their presence more because I'm teaching them how to, be emotionally intelligent mm -hmm. and sing and dance and act and interact with each other, but they're teaching me. Mm -hmm. I'm learning from them. And so I want to make sure that in order to build community, I'm mm -hmm. never leaving the idea that I'm as, I'm a student as much as I am a teacher. And I was always transparent with them. Like Ms. J apologizes for reacting the way mm -hmm. that I did. I could do better. And I know I could do better and I will mm -hmm. do better. And I think with that, you know, sometimes the parents would be like, oh, they talk about you, yeah. you know, and I felt comfortable talking to the parents because sometimes I would hide in the back this <laughs> week. Mm -hmm. But then after I got used to it, I would be like, hey, what's up? Like they did re really well today. And I really felt like it built such a beautiful connection with me and my community because I'm so used to thinking I have to leave to go somewhere else oh yes. let's go to the north side to do this program or mm -hmm. let's go to this good neighborhood or let's go to Hyde Park or let's go downtown these are where the programs are at but this was a, a bus ride away from my house mm -hmm. this was a bus ride away from my high school this is in, in the community where people don't have programs mm -hmm. so I'm like the fact that these kids probably live down the street from me down the block from me around the corner from me a bus ride away from me and they're seeing me in this space mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure they're looking at me like I want to do that. I want to be that. And you know, they they don't forget. Now it's been a long time. Two stories I love to tell right here in our program. Now we have a 17 year old. Mm -hmm. Her mother used to be my seventh grade student. She named her after her middle name oh, is my first name. That's dope. I love it. And I didn't even know this until I came mm -hmm. and she works for one of our programs. I'm like, that's my name. Like my name, why Shonda is very unique. Mm -hmm. And then I found out her mother. And so my favorite seventh grade teacher, she told her daughter and she, you know, the honor of giving her my middle name. Mm -hmm. And then last year there was a music program, a music event, something like Lollapalooza, but I'm, I'm forgetting the name of okay. it, but it was at Union Park and we got free tickets and I went with my, my own children. One of the gate takers was one of my seventh grade students. Oh, wow. And now I told you, I was like 21. So I had seven and eighth grade and some of them were 15. So mm -hmm. I'm literally only like five and six years older than some of my oldest students. Mm -hmm. But I remember their names and I looked and I called her by name. I remembered her name and she looked and she said, 
As a matter of fact, I think I wasn't even married at the time. She called me young. She called me, but and she was like, "Thank you." <laughs> she gave me a big hug, and she started to tear up. And I was like, "This is my family." And she's like, "Oh, best teacher ever!" Oh my, and she's doing all this stuff, and it's like this forty-five-year-old lady that still remembered me. And my, we walked past, and my kids like. Mom, is there anybody you don't know? <laughs> and she is like, your age, isn't she? You know, the kids would tell me that. But they remember. <laughs> so when you tell me you think you're not doing the best, you're right. Young people know authenticity. You may not be perfect in your deliverance, but they, they can feel and sense the authentic love and care for them. And they respond to it and they remember it. And I remember it from my mentors. I remember it from those strong women that I told you about when we started. Mm -hmm. And so keep that, stay true to that. Just want to speak that back into you. I also <laughs> want to say I bribed my kids with snacks too. Sometimes so, that works sometimes. <laughs> so I'm like, well, I was like, what y'all want? I'm going to go to the store. Y'all going to be good today? <laughs> y'all want some talkies? You say, what kind of candy? I'll get it. Yeah. But I remember also when I was there, it was this one girl when I was in middle school, like seventh, eighth grade, I used to help with the kindergartners and the preschoolers. So during my recess time, I'm like, mm, I don't want to go to recess. I'll go and read to the kindergartners. And it was this one girl who was so attached to me. And I was, she was the sweetest little girl ever. And she actually was at that camp. And I hadn't seen her since I graduated eighth grade. And I'm like, that has to be her. There's no way it's not her. And I remember, I think she came up to me and she mm -hmm. said something she was like, oh my God, it's you. I used to be so obsessed with you. And I'm like, oh my God. And like, we like, oh my God. I, I went home and I cried that day. Cause I'm like, she was like a little sister to me. And I was like, sometime I'm afraid that like when kids see you so young, they're not going to remember you. I'm like, wow, she remembers me. And I thought that was like super profound. It made me more passionate about continuing the work that I want to do mm -hmm. but speaking about the kids what part do they play in building the community one thing I believe in and one thing we do here in our program we believe in empowerment mm -hmm. and so many spaces our young people are disempowered mm -hmm. we make sure we empower them here and one of the ways in which we do that, we're always talking to them, getting their ideas, even when it seems like off the wall, we, we process through it. Okay, how can we make that happen? What could it look like? And sometimes we have to speak vision back into them and let them know you're capable of doing that. And mm -hmm. so the kids role, I think it has multiple parts. I think it's just like everything else I've been saying, there's an interconnectedness into the relationship they have with us, because first of all, we have to let them be empowered to have a role. Then we have to listen to their roles. Mm -hmm. Then we have to do the part we can we can do that we can be responsible for, mm -hmm. for helping them bring their desired aspects of what I'm particularly talking about this, this uh, program. Or won't, school can be a little difficult yeah. because you have certain set of guidelines you're looking to follow and sometimes it doesn't fit well mm -hmm. but one thing that I do remember doing when I was back in the classroom even up till eighth grade I always read to my students mm -hmm. people could not believe it they sit and they read I'm like yes and you know why they sit and they enjoy being read to because sometimes we take away their youth mm -hmm. 
We take away, oh, they're too grown. They're exposed to too much. Well, give it back to them. Let them be kids again. And they would sit. They Then you know what would happen? I would be so animated in my reading. I remember Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. I would read it every year. And it got to the point, I would never ask the kids ahead of time. And I would say, you know, next quarter, if anybody ever wants to do the reading after lunch, just let me know. And they giggle and whatever. And then finally one or two kids will be like, can I try this Rivera? I'm like, yes, go for it. And they sit and they're like, okay, chapter two. Cassie said to little man, little man, you better stop. And then the kids <laughs> would laugh because they were trying to mimic me and how I would read. But it was, again, it was setting an example. And then by the end of the year, almost every kid volunteered to, mm. and even those who struggled a little bit, I'd say, if you want, I can help you practice ahead of time and mm -hmm. we can do it. So I think the greatest thing is to let them know they are empowered, yeah. especially our children in so many spaces that's taken from them. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we think about it from a teacher perspective or an adult perspective to remember to empower them and then to walk with them mm -hmm. to try to bring their visions of what that their uh, ideas and things look like, bring it to pass. That's so I have like just, you know, two little things for one, I'm sitting observing right now and the classroom that I'm currently observing in it is a flex class. These are students who are ESL mm -hmm. um, learners and they come from other countries. Some of them have traveled alone by themselves to find family mm -hmm. here. And they are in seventh, eighth grade, sixth grade, and they are at second grade, third grade reading levels. Mm -hmm. A lot of them speak Spanish. Majority of them are from Spanish speaking countries. One of them is from an indigenous tribe and they speak a language that's called Konkabul. Mm -hmm. Not many people speak it, less than a hundred thousand people. So it's not in anywhere that can be translated because mm -hmm. no one has studied that language. And so I'm learning Spanish right now currently. And so when I'm in the classroom with them, sometimes they don't understand what I'm saying. Sometimes they don't think I, I don't understand what they're saying. I'm like, I can understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I just can't speak Spanish that well. But I try to meet them halfway and speak mm -hmm. as much as I can because I never I, I don't want them to. I know they're trying to assimilate and adapt mm -hmm. to the culture, but I don't want them to lose themselves mm -hmm. while trying to fit in where they moved to. I don't want them to lose their individuality and comfortability. I want them to know I see them. I hear them and their language is just as important mm -hmm. as my language, because also I think what they don't, they don't understand is you can understand two languages mm -hmm. and you can speak two languages. Mm -hmm. A lot of people cannot say that. And I hate the fact that a lot of teachers right. who don't deal with students who are second, who are English second language learners, yes, they don't they don't push them to do that. The teacher that I have, she's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them, they'll email her in the middle of class like, I don't understand what's going on. My teacher is not engaging with me. Come get me and help me, please. Mm -hmm. Because not only is she trying to teach them English, she has to make sure that her lessons correspond with the common core mm -hmm. lessons so that way they're not behind mm -hmm. and they'll be able to keep up. So sometimes I take students individually and I speak with them and I just try to make sure that, you know, I'm I'm building a community mm -hmm. for them, even if I'm not going to be there for long. And even in um, like talking about Black language, when I was doing a intern, I don't want to say internship, it was a program for one of my education classes. Mm -hmm. And one of the girls was speaking in Ebonics. And I know typically we're like, mm, it's not I ain't, it's I am. Mm -hmm. And I had to figure out how do I navigate this? Because I want them to be able to go into spaces 
when people are talking a certain way, mm-hmm. that they know the language and they're able to fit into the language, but I don't want to demonize them. Mm-hmm. And I think that is very important that you talked about empowering them, empowering them because language is very powerful. Like that's something I'm still talking about in my college classes is how do you speak properly or what does that look like? And if you can't use your voice and you can't speak, what does that mean for yeah. them as they get older? You're going to be going down the rabbit hole if we even open this conversation up. So I'm just simply going to say this. You talked about power mm-hmm. and we have to always look at the places where it has been intentionally aimed to disempower us mm-hmm. and disempower people. Every other country, excuse me, that you go to, and I've traveled the world, I think it's only maybe two continents I've not been on. Oh, wow. Okay. Their kids in school, they speak, they speak three and four languages. Mm-hmm. That's power. How would you have someone with that ability bring them here, here, try to mute them and tell them English only? Mm -hmm. Historically, that's a whole can of worms we cannot open in this particular conversation, but it goes back down to power. Mm -hmm. It really goes down to power. And I love to tell people about A.D. Carson. You ever heard of him? I have not. You have not? No. Do you know who he is? A professor who got his PhD, I think it was 2017. Mm-hmm. He wrote a 34 song uh, hip hop album for his dissertation. Mm-hmm. And you can look him up. We have to be careful that we're not perpetuating the things to keep us down. Mm-hmm. Social media, they're saying words like we say now. And I'm, you know, using. TikTok, they're not the gatekeepers anymore. We need to not get, and I say they, being very aware that white centered mm-hmm. thinking and everything has what has been what's ruled. Now it's shifting now. It's shifting. Yeah. But we have to make sure we're not contributing to things that keep those things in place. Communication speaking, we can understand each other. Yes. And I, I did whole research around that before I got my PhD, which was part of it. But I'm just wanting to say, be mindful. This is why it means so much for us to empower our children. Them talking about our hair, them talking about our skin, all of that is ways to get us to then think, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not that. Because what, somebody else told you that? Mm -hmm. We need to be making sure that we're pouring into our children because we're powerful and we're resilient because for as much as they try to keep us down and put us down, we're still standing. We're still standing. So be mindful. Yeah, we sometimes know the King's English might rule someplace, but it's not ruling in the same way that they put the standard on me Mm -hmm. that that they're putting on someone else. And I'll tell this last example. And this is, I fought on the other side of that argument for a long time with um, Dr. Vay, people know him. And he he is my brother. So we go way back. But he talked about this this terminology called code meshing. And I fought him as a teacher in the classroom. No, our kids need to speak right because this, this, and that. And we fought. And his, his thing was simply a challenge. Pay attention. All I'm saying is the standard that they're using to put us under, they're not upholding. Mm -hmm. So I was at a conference one day and there was a white doctor talking to a bunch of mostly like Latino and whites because we, I mean, 
blacks because we were working in an inner city. Mm-hmm. She's up there. She's this doctor and she's saying stuff like, ain't this and doing this. And I hadn't gotten my PhD yet. I had my master's degree and I'm up there saying, hmm, I know if that would be me up there talking like that mm-hmm. and moving and doing it, they would not be as receptive. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, same education, everything else. And it really, that was the catalyst that started to make me look through a more critical lens. Mm-hmm. And we talk a lot about looking critically at things now. We need to teach that to our children. We need to teach, like, just like the George Floyd thing. If we'd have read what the Minneapolis police put out and let it be, oh, man died today after altercation. If we didn't have Darnella Frazier's video and we just went by what was written up, his death would have been in vain. Mm. So we need to teach our children to have a critical eye. We need to teach them that they have beauty and power within themselves. We need to give it to them when we can. And we need to push back on these things that have tried to hold us down, you know, along the way historically. Been long this time, but anyway, that <laughs> you start touching on those things, I'm very passionate about. But I just had to throw that back to you. So typically, I tell people to drop a gym, and I feel like you didn't drop so many gyms. I don't know if you want to drop another one, but if you do, drop a gym for the people that you want them to leave this conversation with. If you have one, because you just mm. I think I would would end this. I'm a very, I must be honest. I I'm like a very prayerful believing in God, person of faith. I am too. And I believe, I believe we, our lives are purpose. Mm-hmm. And so you, you feel the things you feel. Mm-hmm. You're passionate about what you're passionate about because you're purpose towards that. And I believe that the gym I would like to leave, pursue it. Don't let the status quo hold you back. Don't let what anybody else tells you hold you back. I walked out of a classroom. I think at the time I was probably making like Mm 72,000. I walked away and I was an administrator at that point. And that was over some 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. I walked away from what could have been the most securest job. You just keep teaching till the end, you know, right? That's what you do. Um, It was a salary at that point that was lucrative, could have only continued to increase. But my heart wasn't able to beat well in that place. Mm-hmm. We need to find the places where our heart beats well, because those were the places and spaces and callings we were meant for. Mm-hmm. And so my gym would be, I don't care how old you are, young you are, different you are, find what makes your heart beat yes. and pursue it. And I would say to that, my gym would be listen to Dr. Rivera, <laughs> but um, I would just say, be who you need to be for yourself, be who you need to be for your students. So that way you can bridge that gap of disconnection, because I think that's the best way to build a community is to build yourself up, build your students up so you can give to each other and just build and foster the community that you want to see as you grow. And that concludes this absolutely amazing episode. Thank you again for joining me. You did not disappoint. I have been hearing about you for so long and I am super happy that I got to have a conversation with you. Thank you. And peace.